Coming up, this Hall of Famer reigned over the women's division for years before finding her place behind the NXT commentator's desk, the Glamazon. Beth Phoenix joins us as ATB starts now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to After the Bell. I am still Corey Graves. And after a very, very close call, a scary situation with retribution last week on Friday Night SmackDown, my head is still intact. And I leave you with this advice. Don't ever, ever try to sprint in dress shoes. It will not work out to your benefit. But we're not here to talk about me. We are looking forward SummerSlam right around the corner. And so is NXT TakeOver 30. It's surreal. I remember being at the very first TakeOver on the WWE Network. seems like a million years ago. I will not be present this year, but my guest this week will be. She plays an integral role in the television product that you enjoy each and every Wednesday night on USA Network. Please welcome my Hall of Fame guest and very close friend, Ms. Beth Phoenix. Beth, how are you? I'm fabulous. Living the, uh, the mom life, juggling as always, uh, being a chaos coordinator at my very best. How are you? I'm tremendous. I don't feel as though I have as much chaos to coordinate at this very moment. Is there any truth to the fact that you have been in the vicinity of an earthquake in the, the recent days? So apparently, yes, but because the pitter-patter of little feet around my household is a constant thing, which is typically, it sounds like a herd of elephants all the time, I did not notice said earthquake. But I came downstairs in the morning and my husband, who had been sitting outside, was like, I don't know what just happened, but all of our like sconces were shaking. And I'm like, oh, it's probably the generator going on or something. He's like, no, it was an earthquake. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then I open up my phone. And I'm like, oh, shoot, he was right. <laughs> I have that same I have that same issue, but that's because there's a subway that runs directly under my building. So right. periodically throughout the day, my living room will start to kind of jitter a little bit. Yeah. Got to have a lid on your coffee. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Glad everybody is safe and sound. Finally, I got you on ATB. It yes. has taken a million years and, and, you know, scheduling issues and whatnot, but you are finally here. So I am excited to have this chat. I'm so excited too. I feel like it's been, I don't know how we didn't coordinate. It's just been a lot of swerving and me getting RKO'd and like all kinds of like. Yeah, you had to screw it all up and go get RKO'd last time you were supposed to be a guest. <laughs> I know, my bad, sorry. I, I, I was going to say, I put the heat solely on your shoulders, not Randy's. It's okay, it's okay. I'm used to it. Pile it on, pile it on. Oh, we have so much to get to. We can talk about your Hall of Fame career. We can talk about what you're doing these days. So let's just kind of see where it goes. Yeah, sounds good. I was thinking when I when I knew I was going to be talking to you today, how long you and I have known each other. It's been crazy. Like when you think about when we were doing Pennsylvania indie shows in front of no people. And uh, there was this this girl that insisted on beating up the guys all the time. And we were like, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> well, the problem was there wasn't any other girls. It was just a lot of us, you know, in the crew, there was males. And I'd cross my fingers that if I got to an independent show, there would be another female to work. But a lot of times, you know, there were girls that were, you know, comfortable being managers, but maybe not really interested in being a wrestler and having that role. So it was just like, if I had to wrestle guys, that, that was the way to get experience. So, and the, the Pittsburgh scene I loved because there were so many guys that were like, if I got to the show early, cause I was tra traveling from Buffalo, they'd give me a little time in the ring here, come, you know, here's 30 minutes, come take a DDT. And so like, they, <laughs> I, 
long before I learned to take back bumps, I learned to do hurricane ranas and take DTs and give these. So, so that's how they train people now anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> Just, yeah. Here's a moonsault. Now you know how to throw a punch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we sound like a couple of bitter old timers. Mac and mighty. <laughs> <laughs> Walk me through a little bit of how you broke into the business. Yeah. So I was the wrestling fan. I think my story is really similar to a lot of the folks that, you know, got into wrestling and are currently wrestlers, grew up a fan. My grandmother loved wrestling, grew up watching wrestling with her. And, you know, I saw Brett versus Owen WrestleMania 10. And that was the match that switched the little flip in my head from like, you know, oh, I love, I love this to, I got to do this. I don't know how you do this. I don't know anyone that does this, but I have to do this. So, you know, once I got into college, because my family was like, be a pro wrestler, are you nuts? Like, no way. Uh, I started moonlighting on the weekends and, you know, hiding the indie shows and just trying to seek out, like I said, like learning a move here or there, like being able to get this much wrestling time to take a bump. Like I did a lot of battle royals in the beginning just to like, you know, a lot of walk around, punch, kick and fall out of the ring. But like it was some way to get some kind of experience. And and that was pretty much how I started before I ended up um, getting, you know, pursuing WWE a little bit harder. So what point did you kind of tell yourself, uh, I'm going to jump the gun on you and and talk about your time moving to Louisville and joining OVW? What in your mind had happened that really convinced you to go, okay, this is what I have to do? When I started working for Ron Hutchison in Toronto, Ron had, um, he had some connections with, uh, with the office in WWE. And so if he had a wrestler that was like, he felt like they had star potential, there was communication there and they, you know, Ron had trained Edge, Christian, Tristratus. So he had a good reputation, which is what drew me to going there anyways. I wanted to learn from the guy that trained WWE wrestlers. And so, you know, that that time there with Ron kind of showed me and opened up my eyes. Like he also helped bring in girls for me to work, to learn from like Sumi Sakai. I had her first match here in the United, well, it was in Canada, but you know, her first North American match and she didn't speak any English. So, you know, I got to wrestle a Japanese wrestler without going to Japan because of Ron and, and learn from her. Um, so anyways, through that, like the grapevine, the, the crazy, you know, connections of pro wrestling, I was able to get a VHS tape to Tom Pritchard. And then, you know, they brought me in for a tryout and it was myself, Gail, Kim and Tracy Brooks. And they hired Gail. They said, Tracy, you know, we're going to keep looking at you. And they said, Beth, you're not really what we're looking for. So back to the drawing board. But through that connection, I, I met Nora, Molly Holly. Mm-hmm. And Nora was a big advocate for me and, and kind of she was giving me the answers to the test being like, you know, you got to work on your look. You got to get some nice gear. You got to like present yourself more like a star. And she really like helped me out so much from jump because she, I think she saw that I really loved wrestling and, and wanted this badly. <laughs> so then she hooked me up with Nick Dinsmore and Nick Dinsmore said, well, if you're serious about this, you need to go meet Danny Davis and you need to work. You have to ask Danny, like if you come down and train. I'm going to interrupt you for one second, just mm-hmm. to clarify in case anybody listening isn't familiar that Nick Dinsmore is most famous, most well-known as Eugene in WWE. And a lot of people don't realize how many mega stars Eugene had a hand in helping train. He never really had a run other than Eugene uh, as, and as a single star. But for me, from you to John Cena to basically a who's who of WWE stars, Dinsmore helped train. And Nick also, again, like believed in young talent. Like he was just, he was so, he saw me and he saw that I was hungry and he's like, listen, all I can give you is an opportunity. Then it's up to you. 
So he called Danny and I drove to Louisville, my, my first time ever being in Kentucky. And I went to the school and I, Danny sat up in the, uh, the crow's nest up on the perch mm-hmm. and the ring was at the TV studio at the time. And I got in the ring and there was, I think five or six other wrestlers there and they all stood on the apron and they tagged in and out and wrestled me for an hour. So I had to stay in the ring while they all tagged out and Danny stood up on the perch and he was like, you know, do you want to give up? Do you want to quit? Do you want to quit? And I was like, I was just getting up and inside I'm like, I'm going to barf, but I'm going to barf in this ring before I quit. So I just get up and say, nope, no, sir. No, sir. And everybody kept tagging in and working with me. And then after that, Danny said, I'd love to invite you to come down and train with us. So that was how I got into Kentucky, <laughs> into OVW. And it's wild to think about now because we, we use the term trailblazer all the time when, when describing particularly female wrestlers in WWE. You kind of came along at a time where women's wrestling was in a very different place, particularly compared to today. What kept you going, knowing that even back then you, you mentioned Trish Stratus, but she hadn't even been the, the megastar that she was at the time. It wasn't necessarily the the most attractive spot to be in. No. So the women, the branding of the women was very sexual and I was not, it just wasn't me. I wasn't like, I wasn't, um, I didn't have that figure and the bombastic personality. And like, I wasn't, that just wasn't me. But I just, in my heart, like I, I've said this a million times, but I felt like if I could get my foot in the door, if I could somehow fit the mold in some way to get my foot in the door, I felt like then people could see what I could do. And so it was, it was a tough time. Like they weren't necessarily hiring independent female wrestlers. Like Mickey James was there. Jillian Hall was there. But again, like they were, they were the small percentage and they were hustling and bustling and OVW busting their butts to try to be the, the next Trish because Trish was the gold standard at the time. She, she looked the part, she put the work in and she, she got over, you know, so all of us wanted, wanted to t- kind of take it to the next level. And, you know, even though the girls like Trish had such a tough spot, she had to learn to wrestle on live TV. Right. During the Attitude Era, when we had the most viewership of all time, you know, and and she was in high-profile main event matches with very little experience and crushing it. You know, she was put in such a tough spot. And I just, you know, that she really and herself and Lita and Ivory and China, all those girls kind of set the stage for this n- new group of girls to come in and and continue the work that they'd done. Walk me through the the OVW transition to WWE TV. How was that for you? So for me, it was really rocky because, you know, when I, when I came down to OVW, I wasn't signed. I worked for almost two years and Danny Davis, Al Snow, Lance Storm, you know, everybody had given me, Paul Heyman worked with me a lot too, had given me an opportunity to be on OVW television with the contracted talent. And because of that, I was getting seen by WWE all the time. They knew who I was. They saw me improving, but they're like, we're not quite ready to sign you yet. But then I did a gimmick with Aaron Stevens and Shelly Martinez. We d- we were like this true. Damien Sandow. Damien Sandow. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Damien Sandow. Yes. Back then and when he was simply an idol. He was the idol. And we did a very, for me, it was like a very sexualized gimmick, something I had never done before. We dressed in lingerie and I was like the angel. And then Shelly was like the devil. And the idol, we just came out. We were basically his managers, but that's kind of what started to catch the attention of WWE that, okay, I can wear a lot of different hats. I'm not just, you know, this wrestlery girl. Like I can, I can kind of 
fit the mold in, in different ways. And so once we started, and we also started getting over, we went and d- did our own pre-tapes. We went and taped our own vignettes and brought them to the television station. Like we bought these costumes. We like really like put a lot of creativity into trying to get over. And it was after that, the WWE, uh, like I said, I think they saw that I was willing to go into the entertainment side of things and they gave me an opportunity. So that's how I got hired being in OVW and then transitioning to WWE. Now, that being said, once I got my foot in the door, which was my secret plan, I was able to show that I could be a, I, I wanted to be a leader in the wrestling role because we had a lot of girls that came in from the Divas search. Um, I remember picking up Kelly Kelly and Alicia Fox from the airport when they were 18 years old, you know, mm-hmm. and so we had a lot of really new girls. And what I could offer was I could help lead them through a match. So I kept trying to offer to do that more and more and show that like, hey, I'm here and I can do this. I like to help teach and help guide the girls that have less experience. Was there ever any sort of, I don't know if jealousy is the right word, but I know on the, on the guy's side of things, when I first got to FCW at the time, when someone would come in that wasn't a wrestler, someone who didn't do the indies, there was a little bit of resistance. There was kind of a period of like, uh, this guy doesn't want it as bad as I do. This guy didn't work to get here. Did you guys, did you have any of that on your, your side of things being surrounded by a lot of women who came from all different walks of life, as opposed to wanting to be a wrestler? I think, I don't know if it was jealousy, but I think I just had enough self-awareness to know I was never going to be like, I knew at the time they were, they were going outside the box to hire ladies to right. hire the women. They were hiring models. They were looking in the fitness world. So I knew in those worlds, I, I knew that there might be some wrestling fans, but they were going to be different than me. And I knew what I, I was real secure with what I had going on, which was that I know who Bruno Sammartino is. I know I've seen wrestling matches since I was a little girl. And I, and I really, I felt like I got it. I get it. So I, I knew that I, I felt like what I had to offer was secure. And so I was confident in that. But um, I, I also knew, I was like, this is the brand. This is what WWE wants right now. They're, you know, later on, after I was with them a little bit, they brought up, you know, brought on the Divas brand and just started really sinking their teeth into that. So I couldn't balk at that and I couldn't get upset at that. I was just like, how can I fit with that? How can I, what, where can I navigate this minefield of, of that I'm different? And I was always, you know, I, I knew I was different, but I, but in wrestling, sometimes that can be what, what is your, you know, your winning ticket, your, your ticket to, to, to getting somewhere is being different amongst, you know, the group. So I was hoping at some point it would pay off for me that I did, that I was different and I did stand out. And over a long enough period of time, you stood out in a big, big way. It just, you, you said you were the wrestler and, and the powerhouse, the Glamazon that, that was unlike anybody was doing, I mean, China in the past and not to draw the same parallel there, but you were doing things that most women weren't doing. You could go in there and you were, were a real powerhouse. When did you finally get comfortable with yourself on the main roster as a member of WWE? Well, there's a quick story to that. So after I broke my jaw and I was kind of floundering in OBW, just trying, trying to find what the next thing was, I was like constantly coming in with different costumes and gimmicks and like just trying to find something that stuck. And it just, I was struggling, right? Um, I sewed, I went and I had heard this word on Sex in the City, the Glamazon. Uh, and I heard that uh-huh. word used, a Glamazon, in, in a different context, obviously. But I was like, oh, man, I want to have a moniker. I need a moniker like The Rock or The Ninth Wonder of the World. Mm-hmm. So I just went and I stitched Glamazon, you know, from got letters from Michaels and just sewed it on my butt. And I'm like, maybe if I can just create this character like from scratch, I wasn't given an opportunity to really build the character, but I'm going to just try 
So anyway, so I worked at OBW with that on my butt. We, we referenced it a little bit. Then I came up to WWE uh, on the live events. Candice Michelle had just won the Raw. At the time, there was only the Women's Championship. She was working on the live events to get experience. And they brought in myself and a couple other girls like in rotation on the weekends to try to like, you know, help Candice progress. And, and they, I think they're also looking for opponents, like who could be the next opponent for Candice. So I wasn't brought up with any specific plan to be the Glamazon or whatever. I'd pitch vignettes. I'd done all this, but there was no plan. So I came in and, and, uh, I had a tell like a tag match and I had, I wore the tights that said Glamazon. They said, we're not going that direction. Take all that off your gear. You're not the Glamazon. I'm like, okay. So then I have a live event match with Candace on the road and William Regal and Arn Anderson got in the ring with us and they saw us trying a couple different things and they saw the dynamic there and they, they saw that I could do some like power moves and stuff like that. So they're like, well, what if you built the match like this? And Regal really helped me a lot and Arn helped me a lot. And Candice was so game to do anything. Like I beat the holy hell out of that girl. <laughs> and she, and she was like, come on, bring it. She just felt that real special connection and chemistry there. So we had some live event matches and just, we, we really surprised everybody, I think. Cause the, I think the bar for the women's matches had been struggling there for a little while. So they were like, wow, like this, this could be it. And then it changed from me being in rotation on the weekends to every weekend. It was Beth Phoenix, Beth Phoenix, you're on the road. Then I came back to TV and they're like, you're going to work Candace. And uh, we have this idea for you. You're going to be the Glamazon. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Great idea. Where'd you come up with that? So I sewed it all back on and there you go. So that's how I became a Glamazon. We really presented the character like this strong, which I hadn't done, you know, in the past, I was bumping all over the place if you watch my old matches. But I was like, if, uh, you know, I remember Arn Anderson saying, you're like the female, he, female Umaga. That's what we want you to be. Oh, all right. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we ran with it. <laughs> When you look back at your time on the main roster, your first run of your career, what are some of your favorite moments or memories? So first would be Mickey James and I had a match in England and uh, we, it was, I had been like the monster heel for a while, crushing everybody. And, you know, the girls were so awesome in making me like Kelly, Maria, everybody like was Candace, so giving. So they built me like this big monster. And I think I was champ for almost a year, better part of the year. And then finally I had a match overseas with Mickey and Mickey beat me in a, in a big surprise. Like, I think it was like maybe the first, first um, non U S title change in a long time. Uh, certainly I think for the women's title. And uh, anyways, that match was so special to me because I had never been a part of a crowd reaction like that. Like uh, I get goosebumps even thinking about it. I saw like in my peripheral, all the people stand up and like Mickey's reaction. It was like probably the most real moment I had felt in wrestling up until that point. So I always remember that. That was really special. I remember all the stuff I did with Santino. There's too many to name. Right, right. I had that note in my, <laughs> my, my notes here. And I was like, oh, man, that, we need an episode unto itself for that whole period. Yeah, you need to you need to have him on because he's just he's I got to I just have to put him over real quick and just say, you know, a lot of guys would have been put in that situation and felt um, like put down by having to put over a woman, especially at that time. And the reason that chemistry worked was because, again, he was so giving in making me the bully and mm -hmm. him that it, it turned in baby face because he was, he just, 
I was the heel. We were supposed to be heels, but he was the baby face because I was so borderline abusive to him. Uh, only in wrestling. <laughs> only. But he, you know, he also, a lot of that was off the cuff. A lot of that, he would work his damnedest to get me to crack because I was pretty good at having the, the serious face. And so he made it his goal often to, to go off the cuff and say things under his breath that would just cr- kill me. So that was real special. And then, um, of course, being in the men's Royal Rumble, I think is probably my career defining. Like if, if there was one thing that put me in a, a category deserving of Hall of Fame, which I still wonder how the hell I even got there. But me looking up to China as a, a role model and a true trailblazer, somebody that was like the first to knock the door down and deal with a lot of crap. Right. And and really um, re- be a representation of something so different and diverse amongst the women. I just, my mind was blown when I saw her. I was like, this woman, she's the one that was inspired me to lift weights. And just, you know, I was like, wow, you can be powerful and beautiful. And and, and there is equality in the future. And uh, yeah, so, so being able to walk in her footsteps 10 years later was the most special thing in the universe. Like it's still, I still have like, I almost blacked out during that whole moment because it was just so big and, and life-changing for me. So that, that one stands out to me as a, as a big moment. Well, obviously during, during your tenure, you uh, racked up enough accomplishments to put together a very impressive Hall of Fame worthy <laughs> resume. Uh, but, but you stepped away from WWE around 2012, was it? Because maybe yes. the state of women in sports entertainment wasn't the most glamorous. Pardon the pun. Yeah. So a couple things. I had I had had three. Both of my grandparents and an, my one and only uncle, whom I was very close to, passed from cancer very suddenly. So I had three family members pass away within about a year, and I missed funerals. Like I missed being there for the last. So like I I was starting to kind of get exhausted with the road schedule. It had been twelve years that I'd been traveling as an indie wrestler and a pro wrestler, and and I missed a lot of stuff. And at that stage too, like I had been banging my head against the wall with WWE for so many years, just wanting to change things. And I had, I'd hit some roadblocks. I hit walls. I'm not going to lie. Like there were, I shed tears over like, man, I hope that I did not waste all this time, waste my life. Like I really wanted to make a change. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to inspire other little girls like China inspired me and, you know, Brett Nolan inspired me. And I was afraid that I had wasted all that. I'm like, I didn't, it didn't matter. None of this mattered. So I, you know, at that point in my life, I had also, you know, met a very nice man (laughs) and he, you know, he was, he and I were both kind of like, he was in a state of mind. He had been told he had to retire from wrestling and never do it again. So he was wrapping his head around that. And I was wrapping around my head about, you know, a lot of change in my life. And I was like, well, we might be ready for a family. So that was that was kind of dancing around in our minds at that time. And, and that's, that's mainly why I stepped away. And that's when I had the conversation with Vince, which was the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, that's being a wrestler is all I ever wanted to be. I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to be a musician. Nothing like nothing else was as big to me as being a wrestler. So going to Vince McMahon and saying like, I have to go home was really, really hard for me. It was a big, a big moment, a heavy, heavy day in my life. It's one of those instances where life makes up your mind for you. It was, it was, it was just time. I was really feeling it in my heart. And I also, I've never been one to be checked out. I didn't want to be at work sad. I didn't want to be at work not giving a hundred percent because there was plenty of hungry people that deserved to be in that spot instead of me walking around, you know, gloomy. (laughs) 
So, so you step away to uh, live normal life, so to speak, and as normal as a life can be when it's a pro wrestling family, uh, which I'm going to ask you about in a few minutes. But while you're gone in your absence, the women's division slash evolution slash everything about women's wrestling changes. I think for most people's opinion for the, for the better, what's it like on the sidelines watching all this stuff and you still made your appearances from time to time, but to watch the growth of the women in WWE as a whole. So Adam and I, we talk about this a lot too. And we talked about this when it was happening because I, I was pregnant when they did the whole, you know, kind of the changing of the guard, uh, getting rid of the Divas title and presenting the new Raw Women's title. I was at that that WrestleMania, enormously pregnant. (laughs) And it was, at that point, we knew we were having a little girl. So at that point, and actually, I think that was, I was pregnant with Ruby. So we already had lyrics. So we were having a second girl. So for, for me, the big reward was that I was getting, I was feeling very strongly that my initial feelings that I didn't make a difference. I didn't matter I was wrong. Whatever I contributed, even if it was only this much, I did contribute to helping the next generation and the next group of girls um, get more. And why that's so meaningful is because I have two girls and I, I, want, I wanted to know that I, was, I put some tiny little cog in the wheel on the way to my daughters having you know, more opportunities and seeing women in better positions and presented as role models and presented as, you know, in, in positive lights and, and successful alongside men instead of, you know, being put in a, in a sideshow category. So it was, it was a not vindication is not the right word, but it was a validation. Validation is the right word of, of my hope that I had helped along the way. So I, I was so happy for them. And like I said, it was made even more special by the fact that I was pregnant with a second little girl. So now you're at home and you're raising your two little girls and watching as all this happens, as the women's evolution evolves and bigger spotlights, main eventing WrestleMania. At what point does the itch start coming back? Because we all know that once you're in this business long enough, the itch is inevitable. So I, I dreaded the itch because number one, when you've had two babies, your body's very different. (laughs) And like, also, um, I was, there's a lot of fear. And like my husband, this is a conversation we have all the time, obviously, because he came back after nine years and I got, you know, after the hall of fame and all that, I, I got the call to be in the Royal rumble that, that first women's Royal rumble. And that's the first time I put on tight since having two children. So it was terrifying but at the same time, we, we always, I have this mentality, no what ifs, you know, like when I've come to a crossroads and, and it's like, oh God, what do I do? Maybe I'll go out there and embarrass myself. Maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll be terrible and everybody will be like, oh, get out of here, Beth. Or maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be just one really fun night and it'll be another something special to put in my heart and lock away for myself. And who cares what anybody else thinks? So that, that, that's that little Royal rumble experience was so special because, you know, we could, again, it was, the crowd was just as invested. I, I miss the crowds terribly. I'm just, as I'm sure we all do. Um, but yeah, so I think after that and like getting in there with, and also seeing what the women can do now, I, I don't think on my best day in my youth, I could ever compete gymnastically with any of the women yeah. that we have now. Like they can do things that are uh, defy gravity and physics and stuff. 
But, um, but I am so happy to kind of be in the role I'm in now because I can, I can still be close to the product and I get the nice comments like Ember Moon or, you know, Rhea or Charlotte saying that I'm an opponent they would have liked to have. And that's enough. That really, that warms my heart. and makes me feel like special and, and great to know to, that they would include me as somebody that they would like to compete against. But as far as the itch goes, it's normally like, there's something else bigger in front of me, like preparing my husband to come back for Royal Rumble and then like, you know, getting a phone call on the side. Hey, Beth, by the way, do you want to wrestle in the Royal Rumble too? So to that point, I was under the impression you were calling the Women's Royal Rumble with me. And I came up, came up to ask you about it at the at Chase Field. And you went, oh, Corey, I'm so sorry. I, I'm competing tonight. And I went, oh, oh, okay, good for you. But yeah, I'll always remember that. Yeah, that was an awkward conversation. I'm like, I'm surprised nobody clued you in. But yeah. like, I'd, only, I'd only been clued in like five days before that too. So it was a chaotic day to say the least. But man, I'll always remember. It was such a wild, amazing day. <laughs> before we get back to that day, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the role that you're in now. I, of all people, know the difficulty of transitioning from being in the ring to commentary. You went from a Hall of Fame career to commentary, which presents a whole different sort of problem because you already have this expectation and reputation. If there's one saving grace from my perspective, it's that the majority of the WWE fans didn't know I was a wrestler. If you watched NXT or you followed the Indies, you knew what I did. But as far as I'm known as Corey Graves, the commentator, which is weird sometimes when I talk about wrestling, people go, what do you know? You, But neither here nor there. So tell me about your journey from the ring to the desk. First of all, it's a travesty if you don't know Sterling. And <laughs> I would advise all of you fans out there to go check him out. But yeah, so you and I, <laughs> Corey. So the, the deal is if you go back and watch my uh, first foray into, foray into commentary, which is uh, the Mixed Match Challenge, oh, it yes. might be some of my most cringeworthy moments in performance ever. I, I was dying a slow death to where I couldn't even, I was like listening with one ear, like, oh God. But anyways, I was, I was very hesitant to uh, enter this new role because I was never known for my, my strength as a talker. And, uh, you know, I was the, uh, I talk my fists, right? I was the big, strong bully. So that was my, my role and my character for many years in WWE. And I felt like I did well with that. I'm a good conversationalist, but commentary is a whole different animal. And I'll never forget sitting on at the desk with you guys the first time with the headset for the mix match challenge and me like, there is 25 people talking to me right now. And none, <laughs> and none of them are Cole or Corey. What is going on? And it was just, and, and I had been on headset. So here's the big challenge too. I'd been on headset as a talent, you know, like a special guest commentator, right. Beth Phoenix for when I was building a, a storyline or something. And when, when you're talking about yourself, for me, it came very natural and comfortable. I'm only talking about me. I'm awesome. Of course I'm awesome. I'm going to beat you tonight, blah, blah, blah. So I felt comfortable in that role. Now, the biggest thing about commentary is you have to speak eloquently, intelligently about everybody, three hours of content. And, and unless you're Corey Graves and you're at the desk at WrestleMania for 27 hours straight. <laughs> I have the world's strongest bladder. Hasn't drank water in six days. To That's right. <laughs> I look like beef jerky under my tux. <laughs> so many abs. I'm just shredded. <laughs> 
but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just, there's so many layers to it and it's no longer my job to put myself over. It's my job to put everybody else over. And so you have to be able to check your ego. First of all, like you have to realize that that's your job and that comes first. So, you know, I could blab on and on about, oh, when I wrestled so-and-so, but it's not about me. It's about the women's championship match and those two competitors. So there's an interesting give and take about trying to find ways to, of relating my experience to, to give credibility to the girls in the ring, but at the same time, not take away from what they're doing. So it's been a lot of give and take. Uh, I, I stopped looking at social media because in the beginning it was <laughs> yeah. crushing my soul. And, um, and I realized in my husband, who's my, my constant supporter and you were too, you guys and everybody has just been so supportive, lifting me up, um, that the, it's sometimes it's familiarity. The female voice in the booth was real different and jarring. I think for our audience, especially mm-hmm. me who was learning the ropes. Um, but I think as time has gone on, people are finding more comfort in that. And I'm finding my voice a little bit. I still have a long ways to go, but I like the role. I love being able to highlight talent and the, the, especially folks that I know, or if there's something special about them, I can bring forward. I try to do that with credibility and, and give everybody a little personal flavor to what you're seeing in the ring instead of arm bar. <laughs> <You know>, like, <laughs> just talk about who everybody is. Who are some, some people on the NXT roster or some stories happening right now that you personally enjoy the most? Um, so I'm obviously always personally invested in the female storylines because I love our women's division. I think they're spectacular. I think that they've drawn so much attention to NXT and, you know, just like, I feel like the way Ronda Rousey brought real credibility to females in UFC and stuff. I feel like, you know, the NXT girls, they, that's where it all began. You know, you had four horsewomen, you had, you know, like main roster girls loving to come back and work with the new talent because they're so spectacular. And I feel like we our international flavor has never, you know, been better. Like we have so many international wrestlers. We comb the best from, you know, Japan, Australia, England, everywhere. And, and Mexico. And we just, we have so many different styles that it creates this really cool melting pot. So that being said, um, I love, you know, Tegan Knox is one of my favorites. I love Raquel Gonzalez. Like she was somebody that I saw in the May Young Classic, second generation female wrestler, big, powerful woman. And man, she has transformed her physique. She's transformed her presence into a real dominant force. Like I, I really see big things for her in the future when she gets really rolling. Io Shirai, I mean, she can do absolutely she anything. She's incredible. She's, I mean, it's scary how good she is. Of course, Rhea... You know, Mercedes Martinez, another girl that's rolled near and dear to my heart because we've worked each other on the independent scene. And I'm so happy to see her get a television platform, a big one like NXT. You know, she deserves it. She's earned it. Um, and then on the male side, like, I love Undisputed Era. I, uh, I feel like I have never seen, like, four more consistent, hardworking guys than those four. And I know on the show, I razz them a lot because, you know, typically they're the heels and I'm in a babyface role. But those guys that busted their butts, you know, Johnny Gargano, like the, the guys that have been the mainstays, they work so hard, so consistently. And, um, and they still show up and show out. And I, I'm, I'm in awe every single week, every single television taping of what they're capable of. Yeah. I think, um, Adam Cole in particular is somebody that I've really grown appreciative of in getting to sit and and call some of his matches. 
Speaking of Adam Cole, he's going to face off with Pat McAfee, former Indianapolis Colts punter, now multimedia personality, one of my close friends. What do you even expect in a matchup like this? This is something unlike, particularly in NXT. I don't think it's really happened before. We've had the outside personality versus superstar many times in WWE. But in NXT, these are some, this is a pretty daunting task for these two. It is. I actually just saw um, a little interview Pat did where he talked about, he said he was intoxicated and ordered a wrestling ring and forgot about it. And then it just showed up at his house. So he's like, oh, here's a ring. And then he said, Rip Rogers is helping to train him. Which, really? if you know Rip Rogers... <laughs> I, I, that's the first I've heard of that. I'll have, to, I'll have to text Pat and ask him about that one. Yeah, ask him about that. But I would love to be a fly on the wall for that training session. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. But yeah. Yeah, so um, I think Pat having to prepare on such short notice. But, I mean, the, man, the man's mouth has got him into this situation, which is good and bad. You know, I don't... I Like I said, when I talk about Adam Cole... Adam Cole, don't get me wrong, has taken shortcuts plenty of times throughout his career. But, you know, if you zoom out from a respect factor, like we as broadcasters, we're not supposed to disparage people, Mm -hmm. you know, in such a way. We're supposed to highlight the characters, right? And what Pat's been doing is attacking Adam Cole's physique, you know, attacking him personally in ways that doesn't add to our product. And that's what really offended me the last TV taping is I just felt like, you know, this has nothing to do with what we're, we're calling here. But from Pat's side of things, like I said, we will see if he can put his money where his mouth is because Pat's been running his mouth nonstop and there's a long history between himself and Cole. So I, it's always interesting to get mainstream eyes on the product and you, I can be positive. I am positive. I will make a promise that no matter what, this is one not to miss. I'm going to, I'm going to be glued to that one. Cause I'm fully <laughs> expecting a few live rounds to be thrown through the duration. Of that one. I don't know yes. if it's going to be a long one, but it's going to be, there's definitely going to be some, some stiff shots taken. I, I predict. I can't wait to yes. check it out. So you mentioned earlier, uh, the obviously well-publicized return to the ring of your husband, also a Hall of Famer, Edge. Uh, it's been covered at great length. I've had him on the show. I know we've talked about it. Comes back to all this great fanfare and adulation. The same night, I, I remember talking to you afterwards. It was a big night in the, in the Copeland household. You both are on this mega platform of the Royal Rumble. He has his big return. You compete in the Women's Royal Rumble. What is that even like as a family? So... First of all, as a family, the Royal Rumble holds a lot of uh, a lot of weight in our household because technically Adam won the Royal Rumble in 2010 that I was in. So when we have a disagreement or an argument, the mic drop is always, well, I hold a win over you in the WWE record books. So <laughs> one win. We've only had one competition against each other and he won it. So he always uses that as leverage to win an argument. But it was, so it was, it was challenging for me because there was a lot of stuff beyond, you know, I I know Adam had a lot on his plate, a lot on his mind, obviously, but for me, it was safety first. And I, and, and the, the biggest thing preparing for his return was I was, I had been focusing all my energy and attention. Like I just needed to know that he was going to be okay as a wife, like as his, as the mother of his kids, like that had to be priority first. And so I was nervous about that. And then, um, you know, we had the moment where they asked me, like I said, not even a week before, do you want to do the female rumble? And I had been in the ring with Adam so much that I felt prepared to do that. 
But at the same time, you know, I was like, can I emotionally handle that? It's so big what he has to go through and what, what, what's going to happen that I was afraid, like I, I'm emotionally not going to be focused or prepared or whatever. But what I did was compartmentalize that. And I had to be like, listen, Beth, <laughs> to, to myself, I says, Beth, I says, um, <laughs> you, I said, you know, you need to worry about yourself and worry about this moment. And then we'll deal with Adam's moment when that comes. So, you know, I got ready and he was in his room hidden away and, um, and he was okay. I'm like, he's a big boy. He can do this. He can take care of himself. And uh, I had to worry about myself and ended up with multiple staples in my head. Right. <laughs> so, you know, th- there was that. So our, our night started off a little crazy, but once I was able to get a shower and cleaned up, um, then I could sit and finally enjoy like the fruit of all those labors and just kind of share that emotion with him. It was such a big moment, you know, having, we, I had lost my dad. He lost his mom. This was, you know, we covered all this in documentary, but it was a long journey for that one second, you think you know me. And I was really happy that I got to be behind the curtain and all my stuff was done and behind me so that I could just revel in his moment. So it was super cool. And I don't think we slept one wink that night. (laughs) I don't blame you. I absolutely don't blame you. Now, fast forward a few months, Edge is on top of the world, riding high. The greatest wrestling match ever takes place, um, mind you, and I'm sure a, a stark contrast from the 40,000 people in Phoenix losing their mind to having enhanced audio. But I actually texted Adam after the match and I was like, I didn't know what to expect. When you call something the greatest wrestling match ever, you almost set yourself up for failure. But what he and Randy did, in my opinion, was magic. I enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed anything recently. But as we find out several days later, he's back on the shelf again. How does Beth, the wife, step in and and help with this scenario? So it was interesting because Adam got some heat from me because after he finished his WrestleMania match, and I mean, this was his first big singles match back. He was so excited. So he was reveling in the moment, you know, and and he was at the performance center and I'm home and I'm sweating bullets waiting for that text or something like I'm okay. And it was like a good two, three hours before I heard from him. <laughs> and I knew, I knew what time they started. And I was like, wait a minute. Like this is, so anyways, he finally told me he was okay. And I gave him hell over that, but I was, I'm just worried, you know? And uh, so then after the greatest wrestling match ever, he texted me right away. <laughs> but he said, he said, I, I'm okay. You know, my arm's bothering me a little bit, but I'm okay. Cause we didn't really know the extent of it that night. And then he went for an MRI the next morning. And unfortunately they, you know, told us the news that it was torn, but you know, I, I, I'm a wrestler too. I know how injuries happen. And, and, you know, I, I said it could have, this is not the best way to look at it, but it could have been something worse. This is something you, you will heal from. You'll be okay. And he's, you know, he's going to, he's got to put the work in. That's really the part that sucks is like the rehab, the work, um, being a one-armed dad, and a one-armed mm. husband is challenging, especially when you have little ones that want to be picked up and you need to tie shoes and this and that, and you can't. So he had a straight brace and, you know, we had to, we had to all come together like we usually do and figure it out while he's um, recovering. So um, it's a challenge. I've always done any injury or rehab I ever had in wrestling. I was just a single person. So it's like, I could lay here and ice all day and, oh man, <laughs> it's noon. Maybe I should go do my rehab. But, you know, now it's like, it's 6 a.m. and those kids want breakfast. So it's, a, it's just different to do it now in a family atmosphere, but we're getting it done. And 
yeah, the greatest wrestling match ever. Unfortunately, there was a price to pay for it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me because we obviously know a lot of, of superstars and people on the road that have kids and families. Off the top of my head, I can't think of two superstars simultaneously on television who have kids that they're raising actively. Like the, the closest to me was, was is Rollins and Becky, but they don't have their child yet. And she is not on TV. You guys were actively both doing, I mean, you're obviously on commentary now and he's back in the ring with our schedule generally being what it is. That's nuts. <laughs> it was nuts. Pre me moving to remote, a remote situation, which has been a gods, godsend temporarily. I was going every week. So mm-hmm. from Tuesday to Thursday morning, and I was taking the 5 a.m. flight. Like I was trying to keep that trip as tight as possible to help, you know, daddy <laughs> with his duties. But, you know, we, we, we tag in and out. That's what we did before. You know, when he would work in Ireland on Vikings, right. he'd be gone sometimes three months at a time. And we're just used to it. We're, that's our dynamic. When we, when we decided to have children and we had a baby and he was in Halifax full time for the whole year, I had to move with the baby, you know, we just, and I had to put my stuff on hold. We have a give and take. And I know because I was a wrestler, what it takes to perform at that level. And I knew that I had to help Adam pour every, everything we had aside from being parents, we had to pour into getting edge, resurrecting edge from the dead. So that that's just been the way it is. And then me moving into the commentary role, well, he's been so supportive. And if I have to have conference calls or I have to watch matches or I have to, you know, do this or that, then he watches the kids and we tag in and out. We're like truly a living, breathing tag team. And that's the only way to do it. You just have to sacrifice a lot for one another. Well, you've got your tag team partner. So what are the odds (laughs) that we see the resurrection of the Glamazon? Oh, goodness. I mean, it's always, you know, the, the wrestler, the stock wrestler a- answer is never say never. Right. Which I hate, I hate that But it's, it's also the most appropriate because there's yeah. no better way to answer it. Either way, I'm a liar. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I never write it off, you know what I mean? But I will say this, I would never come back to do something that wouldn't benefit a new talent because I... I'm at the stage now where my job, my only job working with WWE is to help build the next generation because I love wrestling and I want to see wrestling continue to succeed. I don't want that to go away. So if I can help in any way, teach or support or like highlight anybody else so that they can then take that little rub that I gave them and move forward, that's the way to do it. That's what so many wrestlers did for me. And I feel like that's my job now as a wrestler in the twilight of my career. You got to pay it forward though. That's the right mentality. That's, that's the only way this amazing business succeeds and survives (laughs) is from that sort of attitude. But on a selfish note, I'm just going to put it out in the universe because someone will listen to it. And I've had this amazing track record of predicting things that end up happening. (laughs) I'm not going to say I would hate to at least call Beth Phoenix versus Rhea Ripley. Just going to put that out there. Let the internet do its thing. <laughs> so I know you're in shape. I follow you on social media. You're still putting in the work. So, I mean, you know, I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. Well. You can hate me later. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Being in shape and being in Rhea Ripley shape are two different things. Corey, so. hey, I'm going to set the bar high for you because I believe in yes. you. <laughs> well, Rhea is about as high as it comes. But thank you for thank you for that vote of confidence. <laughs> right on. Well, I'm going to let you get back to uh, enjoying your time at home sans earthquakes. I yes. appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate you finally uh, connecting here and doing the show. You are always welcome. Hopefully we'll do it again. And uh, 
hopefully you can start coming back out, not remotely. And uh, we get to hang out. <laughs> I would love that. I'm, right. I'm lonely. I'm so lonely. Here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, give my best to the family and I will talk to you soon. Ditto from us. Take care, Corey. We are just about out of time. Thank you one more time to Beth Phoenix for joining ATB. I cannot wait for NXT TakeOver 30. It's going to be wild. I'm sure there's going to be some shocking moments and surprises, as there always are. I'll leave you with a little zen, a little calm before the storm that is TakeOver. This comes from the man himself, the one and only Muhammad Ali, who said, don't count the days, make the days count. There's some zen for you. I'm full of it. Follow at After the Bell WWE on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and use the hashtag After the Bell. I say this every week, but if you're using Apple Podcasts, shoot us five stars. It helps spread the word. If you're an Android user, ATB's on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcasts. Don't miss an episode. You don't want to be one of those dummies that do. And you can follow me at WWE Graves. I'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. That doesn't make any sense because this isn't television. And despite my best efforts, I'm not Batman. Next week, more ATB. G3 Assistance through Virginia's Community Colleges is your pathway to a new future. Helping those who qualify pay for school and train for the right career. Right where you are, right now. Learn more at vccs.edu forward slash G3.